Welcome back in everyone to a very fabulous episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We are so excited to be bringing you two incredible artists today. Returning to speak with us, we have the co-creator Andy Boyd and new to us is the co-creator Philip Santos Schaefer, both who are part of the show Room, 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 playing October 12th through the 28th at the Brick Theater. Tickets and more information can be found at bricktheater.com. We are excited to be bringing this to you listeners. If you remember back when we had Andy on our show to talk more about the flight patterns of migratory birds, he did mention on upcoming projects this show. So we can't wait to learn more about it and really delve into it. So with that, Andy, Philip, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you. Happy to be back, Andrew. I'm so happy to have the two of you here. And I'm so excited to learn more about your show, Room, Room, Room. This is exciting. This is a wonderful show. So Andy, I want to start with you and have you tell us a little bit more about what this show is about. Sure. Yeah. So if we, we do tend to refer to it as Room, Room, Room. The full title is Room, Room, Room in the Many Mansions of Eternal Glory for Thee and for Everyone. And that is what the Public Universal Friend reported was told to them in a vision by an angel, or actually was it two angels? Some Some number of angels who came and and inhabited the Public Universal Friend's body. The Public Universal Friend was born Jemima Wilkinson, and then in 1776 had a mystical vision where she died and her body was taken over by this spirit called the Public Universal Friend, which was sent from God to proclaim the end of the world. And from that moment on, the Public Universal Friend wouldn't respond to the name Jemima Wilkinson, wouldn't uh, wouldn't use gendered pronouns to refer to themselves, would just refer to the to himself as the friend uh, or the public universal friend or the you friend or P-U-F. You know, there's a, a, a variety of different words uh, that, that the friend used, but, you know, no pronouns. Uh, and so the public universal friend is kind of seen as a kind of a non-binary genderqueer ancestor. And our play uh, really kind of takes up that theme and looks at parallels between the public universal friend's experience and kind of our 21st century experiences of some of the same themes. So we look at gender, relationship to spirituality, a relationship to feeling like you're living in the end times, which the public universal friend did. And we feel that way sometimes as well. Like, you know, the clock is ticking on this whole earth thing. So yeah, it's a, it's a experimental musical. We call it an acoustic hyperpop folk opera. We have songs, we tell stories, we talk about theology, we have some audience interactive stuff. It's going to be a really fun time. I love all that. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Philip, I want to bounce over to you now because you're also one of the co-creators. And I want to ask, how did you come up with the idea or help come up with the idea for this show? Yeah, funny you should ask. I earlier today found the text that I sent Andy in 2021 after listening to an episode of American Hysteria where the friend was mentioned. And I texted Andy and I said, have you ever heard of the Public Universal Friend? And Andy said, we should do a play about it. And then a little while later said, Sid says we should do a play where multiple people play Puff. And that was the inception, which I think for me, definitely. And I think this is true for you too, that a yeah. lot of our projects start from a place of, uh, oh, I need to learn about this. I, I want to know more about this. And then spiral into uh, bigger and bigger things. 
So yeah, that's how it all began. And then we applied with the idea for a couple of uh, incubator opportunities and ended up developing it over a year with the assembly. They have a deceleration lab. And so we worked on it with their uh, guidance and funding and did a workshop version at the end of that year. And now this will be the first uh, fully staged, memorized, tacked, multi-week run. And the other, uh, our other collaborator, Sid Island, is, is not here with us today because uh, they're not feeling well, but they're, they're the Sid that Phil mentioned. So it's kind of incredible looking back at that original text exchange and being like, we did kind of do that show. And like, we looked yeah. back a while ago at our initial application to the assembly and we're like, yeah, you know, I mean, we didn't do everything in the exact same way that we maybe suggested we would, but pretty much we made the show that we said we would. And we kind of started calling it an acoustic hyperpop folk opera. It's a little bit of a challenge to ourselves to be like, like we didn't know what that meant. So we kind of thought, well, let's set that as our horizon and try to move towards that. And uh, listen to the music now. I'm like, well, if this isn't an acoustic hyperpop folk opera, I don't know what is. <laughs> I love it. Well, is this the world premiere of Room, 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 or has it been done elsewhere before? Yeah, it's. I think it's the world premiere. Yeah, we had like a, a workshop performance where we were at kind of music stands and and sitting for most of the performance. But this is the first, uh, yeah, full production. I sometimes joke that we want to do this show so many times that people start asking, you, you're still doing that? you still doing that show? <laughs> well, Andy, I want to stick with you first on this question then. What has it been like developing Room, Room, Room? Yeah, uh, it's been a really great experience for me. I've been doing a lot of co-writing in the last couple of years, and I found that to be kind of a liberating process, just kind of not having to be, you know, the final say on everything. Um, and it's also, I feel like the three of us, Sid, Phil, and I really play off each other well. My work tends to be very kind of research-driven, research-oriented, historical in nature. So I kind of did a lot of the research for the piece. Um, Sid is a wonderful musician. So I think Sid's kind of become kind of like a de facto music director almost and has been helping us with figuring out how to do vocal harmonies and stuff like that. Um, and then Phil does a lot of like interactive theater and kind of uh, direct address, uh, kind of uh, theater that borrows from kind of storytelling traditions much more than I do. And that's definitely in the piece as well. So I feel like it's been a great way to kind of bring what I think I can do well to the process while also kind of learning from these other two collaborators. And, you know, we're all, uh, we all get along great and it's been a, a great opportunity to just kind of hang out. And, you know, I think that's always been one of my favorite ways to spend time with friends is to think of a project that you should do together. And then, then, you know, you have, you have rehearsal on the calendar. You have to hang out with me now. <laughs> I love how enthusiastic you are about the collaboration and that such a great piece is born out of it. You can really yeah. see the love and the passion in it. But I want to now bring Philip back in and I want to ask the same question, you know, what has it been like for you developing this piece? Yeah, I echo all of what Andy said. It's been, you know, first and foremost, really fun. And I think that we... Ha yeah, we fill each other's strength or we bring our strengths to the table in ways that elevates the whole project, which is really exciting. I also think it's been really interesting. Some of the big discussions that are a part of the play are discussions that we're having amongst ourselves around what is utopia? What is a relationship to God? What is a relationship to gender? That to be able to be discussing those things with people who I trust 
is so meaningful and so fun. And then I, you know, in my, I've, I've had a rocky year in my personal life and it's just been really nice that I two to three times a week come over to Andy and Sid's or to a rehearsal space and they make me dinner and we eat and catch up and go, how was your day? Oh, it was great. And then, you know, start making a play. And the other part of it I'll say is a big influence on the project is hyperpop and the hyperpop music scene. And that has become a huge part of my life in terms of going to the club, going out dancing and really seeking that genderful utopian experience that I think does happen at the nightclub. And so that's been a really cool part of the process for me is that it's unlocked something that I didn't know I needed. Wow, that is wonderful. This sounds incredible. The, sh- the journey the show has gone on sounds amazing. And I love the way it's come together. I I, I think this beats game night by a long shot. <laughs> With it being such a fun, and yet, I will say, it sounds like a serious piece with the issues it's addressing. Is there a message or a thought you're hoping that the audience will take away from it? And Philip, can I start with you on that? Yeah. I think there are many. I go, I, you know, I, I so my biggest artistic influence has been the living theater who I've studied since I was 16 and was a member of for many years. And something that I really like about the Living Theater is they're very Brechtian in terms of willing to tell you, this is what I think. And I don't believe in non-didactic theater. I think I think what I think because I think it's right. And I think other people should think it. That being said, I also believe that theater can be a really great opportunity to ask questions in a space where the answers don't immediately impact you, share those answers with other people and learn about yourself. So it's a little bit, I wanna tell you what I think, you should think it. And a little bit, when I tell you that, how do you respond and how do you carry that forward? So I think two of the biggest strains for me are firstly, this notion of utopia as a process that we partake in collectively and as something that we can realize if we dedicate ourselves to it, but that never becomes, it's never over. It's never, okay, we did it, we achieved this, we got there. It's always the thing that you're making. And then the other is that the things the world tells you you have to be, don't have to be the things you are. And very directly in regards to gender and in in regards to allowing oneself to think expansively. And then I think beyond that, just generally, there's no reason that you can't be an angel sent from heaven if that's the thing that empowers your good work. What a lovely message. I love that. Andy, how about you? What's the message or thought you hope audiences take away from the show? Yeah, that's, I, you know, I certainly echo all of what Phil said. And I, I would also just say, I think one of the things that a number of the people who saw the in-process showing reflected back to us was that they really liked that this was a show that kind of allowed them to think about the spiritual side of themselves in a way that was 
you know, critical of a lot of the aspects of traditional religion, but still finds inspiration in spiritual language and in religious language and in theological language. And a lot of the text of the show is, is like these beautiful 18th and 19th century poems that we've set to music. And some of that is, you know, kind of hymn-like acapella music. And some of it is like hyperpop bangers where the text is a shaker <laughs> hymn, you know? But I think whatever way you access spirituality, I think, I think we're a generation that really hungers for that. And, you know, we're stuck kind of in this space where we we have this need, but the institutions that an earlier generation looked to to fill those needs have failed us. And so I think this show can be maybe a way to get people back to some sense of themselves as a spiritual being, you know, in addition to being a material being. I'm not saying that, you know, those th two things are divorced by any means, but just the idea that, yeah, you can think about well, what is your place in the cosmos? What is your place in kind of ultimate meaning, you know? And I, I think that, that can be a really generative and powerful place to, to sit in for a while. I love that. My final question for this first part of the interview is, who do you hope have access to Room, Room, Room? And Andy, can I start first with you on that? Yeah. So, you know, the last time I was on the podcast, I was talking about my play, The Flight Patterns of Migratory Birds, which was in the Neurodivergent New Play series. And we've certainly been thinking about access for neurodivergent folks, particularly in this piece. As one of our, as part of our development process, we took a research trip using some of our grant money to this party <laughs> called which is a hyperpop dance party. And it was a lot of fun, but it was also very overwhelming for me. You know, it was like a lot of bright lights and a lot of like loud screechy sounds and it very kind of a full body experience in many ways. So that led me to think, well, what's a way that we can make this show in a way that at least one of the performances is accessible to people who maybe can't handle the full sensory onslaught of, of hyperpop music. So we have our, our Thursday, October 18th show is going to be a sensory relaxed show where we're going to have even lighting. We're not going to use any projections and we're going to have the music at a lower volume than normal. So that's you know one very specific way that we're trying to invite neurodivergent people who maybe were, are turned off by the idea of a hyperpop musical to come to see the show. Other than that, you know, I hope that, I mean, I want everybody to see the show, but there are only a couple of hundred tickets, so that's not possible. You know, as I said, I hope it's a show that people who want to think more deeply about their spirituality can interact with. People who are interested in history, you know, I, I'm very interested in what Grill Marcus calls the old weird America. Mm. You know, it's kind of the, the, the history that runs underneath the official story that you've been taught. And it's kind of the, the story of the, you know, the freaks and the mystics and the anarchists that are so much a part of what I love about American history. So I certainly want people interested in that to come. And just anyone who likes a good time, you know, anyone who wants to party. When's the last time you got invited to the theater with the tagline, just come out if you want to party? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Philip, what about you? Who do you hope have access to the show? Yeah, I agree that everyone should come. <laughs> and then I'll say specifically trans people, non-binary people, people whose experience of gender is outside of the binary. I think something that's been really exciting for me about working on this project is locating a historical figure from the beginning of the version of America that we live in 
there was a historical being who existed outside of the gender binary. And, and that's true going thousands of years back. That's true throughout history. But there's so much messaging around being non-binary or being outside of the binary as a fad, as something that is, I think it's talked about as being somehow contagious. And the actuality is that people have always existed in this way. And I think that this is a show that celebrates that and celebrates the community that can arise out of that. And also gives people the opportunity to ask, oh, wait, what have I, you know, maybe, maybe I have something in common with this experience that I didn't know I did. So that definitely to me is, yeah, I hope, you know, the people who I would see at the club and uh, some of whom I have directly invited, I'll want to come to the show and, and, and dance and twirl around in a beautiful skirt. Something Sid said to me early on is I said, my utopia is genderless. And Sid said, oh, don't, my utopia is gender full. And that has really impacted me on a huge level. And so I think that that's, I want to invoke a gender full evening where everyone can be everything. change things up for our second part of the interview and let our listeners get to know you a little bit more andy a little bit better and philip i'm going to start with you on this i want to know what or who inspires you what playwrights composers or shows have inspired you in the past or are just some of your favorites yeah i would say all of my work is deeply rooted in the time i spent studying and working with the living theater in particular, Judith Molina and Julian Beck, who co-founded the theater. It's America's oldest avant-garde theater company that is still in operation, and it's still around to this day. Their approach to theater as an extension of life really blew my mind. Their way of involving and interacting audience, interacting with audience members as a means of creating the play together in the moment of making the play influences me greatly. And their... I, I first read The Life of the Theater, Julian Beck's diary, when I was 15, I think. And I had not gotten into the school musical. And I had just started learning about my first issue of Mother Jones and Adbusters. And I was learning about extraordinary rendition and U.S. torture overseas. And I was looking at the art that I was making and feeling like there was this big disconnect between the things that I believed in and the things that I was showing people or asking people to come interact with. And so it really was the first time that I saw a path for a theater that is political in an overt way that aims at real change. I'm also hugely influenced by Pablo Huelguera and other members of the social practice art community, which extends a lot of those same, same ideas. And I am constantly enamored with Taylor Mac. I think Decades is one of the greatest plays that has ever been made. I interned on it in San Francisco for a month and it was one of the best times of my life. And I think that Taylor's vision for a theater that does all of the 
all of the same things that the living aim to do, but also is fun and crass and low sometimes is, I just love that. Oh, I'll add to the mix Charles Ludlum for similar reasons. I, you know, I love theater <laughs> and I, and I love young playwrights and, and, and my contemporaries and the people who I always say that making a play, sitting down to write a script is an innately hopeful thing because you're crafting something that cannot be done until other people join in. And so you're saying this is an invitation. And so anyone who writes a play inspires me. That is so wonderful. Andy, we've had you on our show before. So we've we've kind of asked you about what or who inspires you, but I'm one I'd like to ask, how did you come into the performing arts? Oh yeah. Well, I you know, I I've been acting since I was a kid. And, you know, I started acting, I guess, when I was about nine. And then I went to a performing arts high school, Arizona School for the Arts. And somewhere in there, between there and a theater summer camp I did, I kind of realized I didn't like acting class. And that was kind of the first, you know, I just, God bless them. I'm sure that these exercises, they do work or they wouldn't do them anymore. But I just could not, I could not get into these, you know, repeating words back and forth to each other and all that sort of thing. You know, I like the text analysis parts. I like the theater history parts. I even like performing, but the sort of the, the daily grind of, movement and speech classes that I knew would, would be part of studying acting seriously. I was like, I, I can't do that. And around the same time, I also started to like meet some people who were really gifted at acting. And like, you know, I, I was sort of, I put in some work and I developed some skills, but they just had like incandescent talent that you could just tell at the age of 17, they were going to be, you know, stars if they, well, I don't know, there's a lot of luck, but they at least had the potential to be you know, famous movie stars and whatnot. So I started looking at playwriting, you know, kind of just I, as a way to stay involved in theater. And I started writing songs a few years before that. So the idea of performing my own material was exciting to me. I started writing like sort of like solo show pieces, you know, inspired by people like Scott Carrier, you know, kind of like experimental radio people. And then that led to plays and I kind of just got hooked. And I actually remember like before I started writing plays, I would ask people that I'd been in plays with, I would say like, hey, do you think I'd be good at writing plays? Like, do, do I strike you as the kind of person who could write a good play? And they would always just be like, well, I don't know. You've never written one. Like, I can't answer <laughs> that just in the abstract. So, but yeah, I mean, I so I started writing plays when I was 17. I went to college and I wrote a lot of plays there. And I just, I've never really stopped. I think plays are are so, so fascinating as a form. I mean, they're really short. Like a play you know, really is like only about as long as like an Alice Monroe short story, you know, and yet it it's its its, its own self-contained thing, you know, that is, you know, there's usually no narration. Our play has a lot of narration, but, <laughs> you know, a typical play, it's, it's, it's about interaction between people. It's about the social, it's about the political. And I think that's been something that has attracted me to it. You know, similarly to Phil, I wanted to find a way to make art that was about the things that concerned me about the world and about politics. And, you know, I think theater is sort of the ultimate political art form because politics is not about what you believe and it's not about what you think. It, it's not about your soul, you know, it's about what you do in the social world and the shared world that you share with other people. And so that, and that's what theater is about. You know, it's about, you know, Aristotle says you can have a play that has a plot, but no characters. 
you know, and I kind of think that's true. Like, as long as people are doing stuff, like whatever's going on in their head is sort of secondary. So I don't know, I think that's, that's exciting to me, you know, writing stuff that is about the, the public and the social. And, and the thing about it is too, is like the form of it, it's about the social and it's consumed in a social way. Hmm. You know, it's consumed in a group other than Phil's plays sometimes, <laughs> you know, Phil performed the play, but even that, even, you know, Phil performed a play in my bathtub, but it was still, it was a group of three of us. Phil performed that play in many people's bathtubs. Yeah. And that's not actually even the smallest audience you've had, because that was often two people, right? Yeah. But you've done one, one person shows for one person. Yes. Yeah. So, but even then it's about the interaction between the two. It's not about Phil just kind of telling you what Phil thinks. It's about a dialogue <laughs> between the two of them. And even if, you know, in a traditional play, one half of that dialogue, the audience is sort of the silent partner. They're thinking about it. They're engaging with that material. They're going to dinner afterwards and talking about it. You know, I think like when the when the play ends, it's maybe like half over for me. And the rest of it is is the, the conversation afterwards, whether in a formal way or in an informal way. And just sort of the way that, you know, somebody said to me something that I found amazing, which was that he'd seen one of my plays in 2018 and he still thinks about it. Hmm. And I, I thought, I thought, wow, I mean, that's so much longer than the two hours that we think a play is. I mean, I, I guess a play can last for five years, you know, so that's, I don't know, I feel like I'm rambling, but all of that, I, I agree with Phil. I think plays were the best, up the plays. I love all that, though. That's also just beautifully said, Andy, just beautiful. Well, I know you both have been very busy lately, especially getting ready for the show, but have either of you seen any great theater lately you might be able to recommend to our listeners? Sure, yeah. I think this is still running. I saw Mia Buela, Queen of Nightmares by Christine Stoddard at, at The Tank, which I thought was very beautiful and moving. And it's a play that is told almost entirely through narration. So you really get the sense of the inner life of these characters, especially the young woman, Maya, who's the main character of the play. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of coming of age story set in this very repressed immigrant family from El Salvador, I believe, living in Phoenix, Arizona, where I'm from. And it was kind of very, it drew on a lot of mythology and kind of magic realism and was very poetic. And uh, I actually sat next to Christine by a total coincidence and she was dressed in this very fabulous outfit. And I said, you look like you might be the playwright. Are you the playwright? And she said, yes, I am. So I, I would recommend that show to anybody. I think that's probably the, the best thing I've seen in the last uh, month or so. I would say if you live in Los Angeles, California, you should go to Bob Baker's Marionette Theater. It's a marionette theater that's been there since my father was a little boy and I go every time I'm home. It's creepy, but <laughs> but I love it. I just saw Pearly Victorious and I thought it was fantastic. I had such a good time. And it's just a really moving play that is incredibly funny. And everyone in it is so good and just giving these fantastic performances. And then the other thing I'll say is I work for Pipeline Theater Company and we haven't yet, but are about to announce our next play. And it is a script that I have loved for years. And so that is one that I will be excited for and that I would say, you know, keep an ear open. That sounds very exciting. Some great suggestions there. Very great. I want to ask my favorite question to you both now. And that is, what is your favorite theater memory? 
Or Andy, in your case, what is another of your favorite theater memories? I mean, I could talk about, because, you know, Phil talked about Taylor Mac, which I was sort of planning on. I was sort of planning <laughs> on talking about Taylor Mac. And I actually, I saw The Lily's Revenge in maybe 2012, which was five hours long and had snack breaks. And I don't know if this is what most people took away from it. But one of the things that I really took away from was like, one of the characters was a critical theorist that Taylor Mac liked and thought was, you know, who and thought that her work was intersecting in interesting ways with the play that Taylor was writing. And so that character just, you know, came on stage and <laughs> said some of the things that this theorist thought and got off stage. And, you know, that 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 way of kind of that, that style of citation, I found very exciting. You know, similar to Phil, I've always liked the idea that it's okay to be a little didactic. And a quote that I think about all the time was from a talk that David Henry Huang gave at Stanford, where he said, people always say you can't write a play about an idea. Well, of course you can. <laughs> and I actually studied with David Henry Huang and I told him about that quote years later. And he said, did I really say that? So, <laughs> but he he really did. And I don't know. Yeah, that 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 play had had such a freedom of form and was like, he, this act is going to be an iambic pentameter. This act is a play. This act is a musical, you know, and I, I found that sense of like freedom really exciting. And and when I've done multi-act plays, I really, I always like it when the act break is sort of, is a break in the sense of breaking the, the, the conventions that have been set up in the previous act. And that's something that I think I, I definitely have taken to some extent from Taylor Mack. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Philip, what is your favorite theater memory? Yeah, one that is foundational to me is the last show that we did of Judith Molina's while she was still alive was called No Place to Hide. And we did it at the Clemente Soto Velez was where we started doing it. And then in the years following, this is right after the living lost their space on Clinton Street. And I just saw a show there for the first time now that it's caveat. And it was very weird to be back downstairs. It's much more uh, co contemporary now, <laughs> the way that that space is laid out. And presumably no one lives in the dressing room. But <laughs> we, we started doing the No Place to Hide in different parks around the city. And one of the ones that we were performing in a lot was Tompkins Square Park, which holds a lot of history for the Living Theater, as well as for the city, of course. But there were the riots in Tompkins Square that, and Judith wrote this beautiful poem about them called Flowers on the Sidewalk, about seeing her husband Julian get clubbed by a policeman as part of those riots. And so all of the performances there felt really powerful already and we were doing one of the performances outside and there was this moment at the end where we've gone we've left the planet and we're we're looking for a safe space and we realize that we're we can't even find it on the moon and so we're coming back to earth because we miss home and we're walking painfully slowly across the park and this one person who had been surrounding the show you know it wasn't ticketed we just showed up and started doing it i doubt we even had permits well we probably didn't need them because we didn't have sound this one guy who had been kind of watching a little on and off started screaming and 
yelling and saying like fuck you and kill cops and a lot of very violent language that we didn't know what to do so we just kept doing the show and afterwards we went over to Judith some of us and she was in a wheelchair and we sort of sat in a little semicircle around her in the dirt and we said we're so sorry we didn't know what to do we didn't know how to stop this person from having this outburst and affecting the show and ruining the show. And she said, no, that was the show. That was beautiful. It was amazing that he joined. It was amazing that he felt such a strong response to what was happening that he had to participate. And even if his participation wasn't what we thought participation would look like, it was still an important part of the play and a response to the play. And that I think, completely changed how I look at audience interaction in particular as not how do I create a context in which people do exactly what I want them to do, but rather the inverse, which is how do I create a safe enough space where I'm ready to respond to any audience response? And so, and how do I create for collaborators tools where we know how to take care of each other if we need to, without interrupting someone's experience of what's occurring and so that that is one that I, I'll think about that all my life and another time I did a show based on a book in my apartment and someone came and stole the book and I think oh that's nice that they like the play so much that they took the book wow wow thank you for those incredible memories that I would have loved to have seen this show that sounds incredible do either of you have any other projects or productions coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? I don't have anything coming up super, super proximally. I'll be, I'll be in touch when I have something <laughs> going on. But. We have been talking and dreaming and scheming about touring this because it's just the three of us. And the tech is, I think, exciting, but ultimately relatively minimal. We have the dream of just being a little three-person band, taking our show to upstate New York and elsewhere. So that is one that I, you know, I want that to happen. And then I've been working on and off on a project about grief that is called, I Love the Way You Say Goodbye, A Celebration of Letting Go. And I completed the first, it, this was an interview-based project that I was doing in residence at the University Settlement. And I did about a year of interviews and then two performances on the summer equinox and one in the fall. So the next time that I do that will be on the winter equinox. And it is a party celebrating grief and celebrating the human capacity for sorrow while also hopefully building tools to be able to ask for and give support to people who are grieving. There's some jokes in it too. Yeah, it starts with a bunch of magic tricks because I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something to just kick things off. And there's some songs and we do crafts together. It's I, I actually think it's more fun than it is sad. But you know, I think I wasn't raised talking about grief at all. That's not entirely true, but I wasn't raised talking about grief a lot. And so it, for me, it's just about fostering that conversation in a space where we're not necessarily actively grieving, but where we can talk about it from a slightly more detached point of view and hopefully build resilience. 
those all sound exciting. That all sounds amazing. Well, like I said, I could keep talking to the two of you all day long. But my final question for the two of you is, if our listeners would like more information about Room, 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 or about either of you, perhaps they'd like to reach out to you, how can they do so? Yeah, so they should go to the it's bricktheater.com. ER. ER, theater, ER.com. Room, Room, Room in the Many Mansions of Eternal Glory for the and for everyone. There's a lot, there's always a ton of shows at the Brick, so you have to scroll down a little bit to find tickets for that, but I hope that you do. It'll be planned October 12th through 28th. I have a website, antijboy.com. I got a contact form on there if anybody wants to say hi. I'm also on Instagram at antijboyd. I post little cartoons. Yeah, that's a good way to say hello. I have a couple of plays you can buy online. I got one called The Trade Federation or Let's Explore Globalization Through the Star Wars Prequels. (laughs) You know, it is what it says on the tin. That's what the play is. And we have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we have an Instagram account? We have an Instagram. It's friend of friend, but it's threes instead of E's. So F-R-I-3-N-D-F-O-F-F-R-I-3-N-D. And that is the Instagram account for friend of friend, which is the group that we call ourselves, the people making this show and other shows someday. My website is philipsansoschafer.com, one Ellen Philip and Schaefer's S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R. And my Instagram is we like Philip, Philip with one L. And on my Instagram, you can get links to my jewelry selling website. I make jewelry. You can find a link to my merch store. I make merch for things that don't exist. Phil <laughs> <laughs> has a lovely character called Jennifer Baseball that's a kind of a sexy baseball. Yeah, Jennifer Baseball. She's sort of my flagship yeah. product. You can get a Jennifer Baseball jacket. Sticker <laughs> on my laptop for Jennifer Baseball. I have a Jennifer Baseball phone case. I saw hats that say Slanctious for people who are anxious, but slay anyway. And yeah. Sid's Instagram is linked on our page. It's syd.island on Instagram. Well, Andy, Philip, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Like I said, I could talk to you hours on end. This has been so delightful. And I'm so excited for the show. I'm excited to meet the two of you. This is just wonderful. So thank you both for your time this evening. Thank you. My guests today have been the co-creators, Andy Boyd and Philip Santos Schaefer, both who are part of Room, 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 playing October 12th through the 28th at the Brick Theater. You can get your tickets and more information by visiting bricktheater.com, and that's theater with an E-R. We also have some other contact information for the show, for the artists. We're going to be posting in our episode description as well as on our social media posts. But right now, Go to bricktheater.com. Get your tickets for this incredible show, this incredible experience. It's Room, 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 playing October 12th through the 28th. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. Praise is
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. Hello.